Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There are many incurable diseases, but families hope new treatments can help their loved ones live a normal life. Today we learn about gene therapy, a biotechnology that went from an idea in the 1950s to the first clinical trial in 1990. There have been several advancements since then. Bloomberg reports there are more than 800 trials underway, targeting diseases including rare metabolic disorders, sickle cell anemia, hemophilia, and Parkinson's. Now, to understand gene therapy, uh, my first guest today is Dr. Ricky Lewis. She's a science writer and geneticist, also author of several books, including The Forever Fix, Gene Therapy and the Boy Who Saved It. She joins us from a studio at WAMC in Albany, New York. Uh, Ricky, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for speaking with me. So first, uh, many of us may not know much about gene therapy. Tell us how it works. Gene therapy adds working instructions for a gene to a cell that has a mutation, and the mutation is what causes the disease. So the gene therapy, it doesn't replace the mutant gene. It adds a working copy, and that usually is enough to restore function. And the overall idea is that gene therapy can potentially provide a forever fix, a one-time treatment where the person never has to follow, well, they follow up, but they don't have to have the treatment again. It's not clear yet whether some of them will be permanent or not, but that's that's the general idea. Uh, these days, we've also heard of gene editing, Ricky. How is that similar or different to what gene therapy is? The goal is similar to treat a disease, a genetic disease at its source, but gene editing is much more precise. Gene therapy adds the healing gene, and it may or may not become part of the chromosome in the cell. Sometimes it just hangs out in a little bubble outside the chromosome. Gene editing homes right in on the exact error, snips it out, and replaces it. So it's much, much more precise. Uh, when we think about how gene therapy is delivered, uh, tell us exactly uh, what happens uh, in terms of uh, when you say that a healthy gene is delivered. What does that mean exactly? It's delivered using a thing called a virus. And everyone thinks of viruses as what cause disease. I'm getting over a respiratory infection right now. But uh, researchers can take viruses, snip out the bad part, parts, and add in a copy of the human version of the healing gene. And that's possible because a virus is not even alive. It's not a cell. It's just a string of DNA or RNA in a protein coat. I like to compare it to a Tootsie Roll pop. So it can be engineered, not easily, but the concept is very straightforward. Just give it a human gene and send it into the body. I mentioned that the idea first came out of the <clears throat> 1950s. So tell us more about you know, where that idea came from. Well, French Anderson is one of the initial uh, gene therapy researchers, and he mentioned that idea when he was in medical school. But it occurred to many people, I'm sure, after the genetic code w was first published in 1953. It seemed sort of an obvious thing. If we know the instructions that cells use, we could maybe intervene in providing more working instructions. So the idea was kind of there in a lot of people's minds. And the first trial didn't get underway until 1990. So sometimes headlines make it seem as 
if a new genetic technology just just came out of the sky suddenly and nothing's ever really sudden, not even CRISPR. Mm. Uh, Ricky Lewis, uh, if you could tell us more about that first clinical trial, uh, you know, what, who was the individual and, and what was the disease that, uh, that she or he had? It's two little girls, four-year-old Ashanti and eight-year-old Cynthia, and they had a form of a severe combined immune deficiency due to missing an enzyme called ADA. So all the, a lot of these diseases have incredibly unpronounceably long names. But they, they, were, they were dying of very frequent bacterial infections. And the gene therapy, which was given, um, I believe, intravenously, their white blood cells were taken out, corrected, and stuck back in their body. And I do have a verbal confirmation that, the, that at least Ashanti is, is an adult and doing quite well now. So it, it, it did work. But the, the improvements were made throughout the 1990s. Uh, Ricky Lewis joins us today from a studio at WAMC in Albany. She's a science writer and geneticist. Uh, one of her books is called The Forever Fix, Gene Therapy and the Boy Who Saved It. Um, if you have undergone gene therapy or someone in your family uh, and you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation this hour, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So from that first clinical trial in 1990, uh, there were other uh, gene therapies uh, and they don't come without risks, uh, Ricky. Uh, tell us about the story of uh, Jesse Gelsinger. Uh, he was the first, uh, I guess I'd call it a disaster case. And um, in retrospect, he had a slight fever the night before his um, his gene therapy, and maybe he shouldn't have been given it. But what happened, we learned from it. The He had a, a metabolic liver disease ornithine transcarbamylase deficiency, um, another one you can't pronounce. And the gene therapy was supposed to go to the hepatocytes. The, those are the most abundant liver cells. And they did do that, and they probably did treat his illness, or they, it would have. But the vectors instead, in addition to the hepatocytes, went to some immune system cells in the liver. And he had an overwhelming, almost immediate immune response. People who were in the room at the time said that within an hour, some of them knew something was wrong. And his organs just shut down over a course of a week. And it, w- it was so tragic because he was a, he was a teenager and um, he'd only volunteered to help the babies who have very severe versions of, of the illness. So it kind of ended gene therapy for a good two years, which was tragic for people whose kids were in clinical trials for other gene therapies. They stopped. Oh, so when you said bad. that um, that these clinical trials were stopped, uh, what did researchers do? What did they learn from the Jesse Gelsinger case? Oh, they learned that if someone's got a fever the night before a procedure, you don't do it, and that's the practical part. But they, they also learned that you have to really know where that vector is going to take the healing gene. It's got to be targeted, and if it's not, you have to be prepared to deal with the effects that are going to show up. You mentioned that it kind of put a halt to, or did put a halt to gene therapy. So how did they, how did researchers, how were they able to restart it where uh, people uh, that were hearing about gene therapies felt confident to enroll uh, their son or daughter? Well, the blame was placed on adenovirus. That's the virus that was used in Jesse. And the trials after that, although a few trials still use adenovirus, many of them use something called adeno-associated virus, and it's much safer a lot of trials also use, it doesn't sound safe, but a disabled form of HIV called lentivirus. That's fairly safe, too. So so researchers revamped the vectors and found safer ones. 
So that that helped a lot. Uh, there was another uh, young boy that you profile uh, in your book, uh, The Forever Fix, uh, Corey Haas. Uh, uh, he's, uh, see, his case is seen as saving gene therapy. Tell us about him. Oh, Corey, yeah, he... Um that story starts at about the year, about 2007, 2008. I was sort of aware that in England, gene therapy trials were progressing to halt a form of inherited blindness. And I thought it was interesting, and but I didn't really pay that much attention to it. And then here's a shout out to local hometown newspapers. About a year later, I picked up the Schenectady Gazette, and there on the front page is the story of Corey Haas, who lived a half hour from me, who was one of the first people treated with the gene therapy when he was eight years old. So the next morning, I hightailed it over to Corey's house, and that's how the book was born. It was right, it fell on my doorstep, literally. So it was a fantastic story because this was a little boy who was on the road to complete and total blindness and a couple of days after the gene therapy, he was blinded by the sunlight he could see so well. So it was pretty amazing. Yeah, that does sound amazing. So these other uh, st- uh, profiles that we just heard about, uh, uh, children inheriting uh, these uh, fatal diseases for Corey, it was something that would lead to blindness. Uh, we actually have a clip of Corey Haas, uh, who uh, was in an interview with CBS News back in 2009. What, what was your reaction when you heard about this, that maybe there might be something that might be able to help you a little bit? Oh. If there's something that can help me see, then I'm all for it. All for it, yeah, absolutely. Were you scared when you, because you have to go, it was an operation, right? Is it an operation? Yeah. Yeah, were you kind of scared a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. And then how long was it before you could, you could, you could, you knew there was a change? Oh, four days. About four days? Yep. Was that something that startled the researchers, Ricky, that that four days after getting this treatment, he was able to see better? Well, they knew from the cases in England that the vision was restored, but in there it was a couple of weeks. It was four to eight weeks. To have it happen just just a couple of days was pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. And it happened over and over and over, and that's why it was the first gene therapy approval in the U.S., uh, in your book, The Forever Fix, you interview uh, his parents. Uh, you know, what were the risks uh, to this particular treatment that they had to weigh uh, before Green uh, for Corey to go through with it? Well, it was safer than other gene therapies that are more systemic because it was, I don't mean to say just his eye, but it was a very isolated part of the body, and they knew he would be blind anyway. So in a way, they had nothing to lose. They prob- The th- surgery probably couldn't have made him any worse and they do treat one eye first and make sure it's working before they treat the second eye. And how long before the second eye was treated for Corey? Uh, they waited more than a year because back then they were being so conservative about everything. But now they do them much closer in time, just a couple of weeks. Mm. And how is Corey, how old is Corey today and how he, is he doing? He's 19 and he's doing great. Just the few, I don't know, in the months afterwards, the parents noted things like he went outside and saw fireflies for the first time and he started jumping up and down screaming and he could ride his bike and then they posted a picture on Facebook of him going turkey hunting. Can you imagine <laughs> aiming aiming a rifle or whatever and shooting a turkey from a distance when you would otherwise be blind? It's, it's just unbelievable. 
My guest today is science journalist Dr. Ricky Lewis. She's also a geneticist, author of the book The Forever Fix, Gene Therapy and the Boy Who Saved It. Now, have you undergone gene therapy or someone in your family? We want to hear from you. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, after the break, we're going to learn more about uh, how a gene therapy has advanced and hear another personal story here on Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Gene therapy, as we heard, changes lives, but it's very expensive. Treatment can cost nearly $1 million per patient. That cost can leave families with trying to raise the money on their own. Like in the case of a Colorado mother, Amber Freed, uh, Bloomberg reported she needs $1 million so her two-year-old can be treated for a newly discovered rare genetic disease. Now, science journalist Dr. Ricky Lewis is with us today from a studio at WAM in Albany. As we learn more about gene therapy, it's something that she's written about for years. And the people she profiles in her book, The Forever Fix, include a little girl named Hannah Sames. Her mother, Lori, joins us now by phone. Uh, Lori, welcome to our show. Oh, thanks for having me. So tell us about your daughter, Hannah, and what you discovered uh, about um, some difficulties that she was having. Yeah, Hannah um, met all of her infant milestones when she was about two and a half um, we noticed that her arches were starting to collapse. Um, she was just having generalized low muscle tone. Um, she was, if she kept, caught her toe, she would fall to the ground. She wasn't navigating the stairs in an alternating footstep manner. Um, and we just felt that there was something progressively um, happening in Hannah. Mm. Now, when you brought your concerns to your pediatricians, what were you told? You know, our pediatrician was a little perplexed. She really put her through a rigorous physical exam um, and thought, you know, okay, yes, her gait is awkward, but I think, you know, maybe that's just Hannah. And then as the months progressed, um, I called her back and I said, listen, there's something going on. We need a referral. So she referred us to a pediatric neurologist and a geneticist. And in a short amount of time, really, it just took about 10 months to get a diagnosis. Some people, it takes 10 years with these ultra-rare indications. So thankfully, we did get a pretty rapid diagnosis and um, decided to fight. So you got that diagnosis. Tell us what she was diagnosed with and what your reaction was. Yeah, Hannah was diagnosed with giant axonal neuropathy. It's a neurodegenerative um, progressive disorder that... Um, basically impacts every nerve cell in the body. So the, the prognosis was very similar to um, ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. So we knew that um, every day that slipped by without an intervention was uh, just catastrophic to Hannah. So we decided to um, form Hannah's Hope Fund, a 501c3, 501c3 public charity began fundraising. We held the world's first symposium on the disease. We brought together anyone that had published on the disorder, and we brought in some functional experts um, that deal with this group of proteins um, that, that doesn't function in HANA. 
and um, were able to fund the development of a first in human intrathecal administration of the adeno-associated viral vector that Ricky spoke about moments ago. Uh, that's quite a feat, but uh, you know, both you and your husband, uh, your whole life changes with that diagnosis. I mean, how are you able to, uh, you know, have the strength and also to find that kind of support for a disease that many people have never heard of? Yeah. Um, you know, my husband and I were both athletes, and um, we're just incredibly driven, and we really refuse to take no as an answer from anyone. And we had no doubt in our minds that we would arrive at a clinical trial. We were going to give Hannah a chance. And thankfully, in the community that we live here in, in Albany and upstate New York, they really rallied behind us in support. We raised $6 million in six years. And uh, we're, this community helped us make this happen for Hannah and children like her around the world. So when you were given that diagnosis, uh, why is the burden on the family to come up with that kind of money for treatment? Gynexonal neuropathy or GAN is ultra rare. So pharmaceutical companies aren't interested in spending millions of dollars to de-risk a treatment for such a small patient population. There's just not a business model surrounding it. And now, you know, the price tag of these gene therapies can be quite hefty because um, these viral vectors are very expensive to manufacture. So smaller biotechs are interested, but still, it really the onus is on the parents and the 501c3 public charities that are focused on these diseases to fund the preclinical efficacy and preclinical um, toxicology studies to de-risk it so that, um, you know, it's, it's a much smaller investment for a company to engage if you have some really solid uh, proof of principle data in hand. Lori Sames is speaking with us by phone. Uh, her, she's a, do- a mother of her daughter, Hannah, and co-founder of Hannah's Hope Fund for Giant Axonal Neuropathy. This is a genetic disease uh, that Hannah was diagnosed with uh, as a toddler. Um, with us also from a studio at WAMC in Albany is Dr. Ricky Lewis, who's a science writer and geneticist, author of the book, The Forever Fix. Uh, you tell the story of Hannah and so many others that you've followed uh, through the years, Ricky. This is something that you have found with other families, is the fact that there, there's not money uh, to develop uh, these clinical trials, and so the onus is on them to figure out a way. That's right. There are several families out there, and they're they're completely amazing. The most amazing family I know are the Kings from Charlotte, North Carolina. Their daughter, um, Taylor King, actually passed away from a form of Batten disease. That just this past September, at the same time that her, her older sister, Laura, was in the same hospital giving birth. It was just, you couldn't make that stuff up. But this incredible family not only has gotten a gene therapy trial underway, but they're continuing to do it even when they knew their own child couldn't be saved. So these amazing parents and siblings of these children with the ultra-rare genetic diseases are so selfless because the legacy of their children is helping others. Uh, Laura, you mentioned uh, this clinical trial for uh, GAN, or again, uh, giant axonal neuropathy. How does it work exactly? Um, our trial is housed out of the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, uh, uh, National Institutes of Health in, Be- in Bethesda. 
um, the children receive, you know, a lumbar puncture route of administration um, in, in the epidural phase, and the virus is injected into the cerebral spinal fluid that bathes the brain and spinal cord. So the virus infects the nerve cells with a healthy copy of the gene, as Ruki had alluded to, that will hopefully have lifelong expression of, of the missing protein. Dr. Stephen Gray, who is now um, the director of the Gene Therapy Center that he's building at UT Southwestern in Dallas, has a daughter, Aubrey, who is Hannah's age. And he really attacked this disease as if he were saving his own daughter. So it's really his tenacity um, and dedication that also really helped make this successful. So I definitely wanted to uh, give a shout out to him. We're eternally grateful for his dedication. Uh, I understand Hannah was injected once back in 2016. How's she doing today? Hannah's doing great. She, um, yeah, Hannah was the fifth patient injected in the trial. She's uh, thankfully very stable. Uh, she's a 15-year-old homozygous deletion, which means she makes no protein at all, and she can still stand and transition to the toilet. Her fine motor skills are still good. Her upper body strength is still good. Um, she's smart, witty, and happy, and we feel very, very lucky. I will say that, um, you know, the clinical trial was approved to begin December of 2014. So, you know, in, in basically four and a half years, they've only been able to inject 11 patients. Um, you know, there's other gene therapy trials underway that Ricky spoke of, one of them, another form of batten, which is the CLN6 gene. They injected 12 patients in three years. So, you know, we're really disappointed that the pace of the trial at the National Institutes of Health has been so glacial because there are patients around the world literally dying to receive this injection. So we're really hoping that um, the pace of the trial will pick up and hopefully will, will uh, lead to an approval so this can be available to all that need it. Uh, Ricky, is that approval process tricky when uh, a group can be so small that's undergoing that clinical trial? Um, yeah, it can be difficult. Usually, a small biotech will take on the phase one, two clinical trialettes on a, only a few patients, but you need to have the numbers, and that's difficult for a very rare disease when there's a few hundred people, maybe even less than that in the world affected. But many times for the phase three clinical trial that has to increase the numbers, a larger pharmaceutical pharmaceutical company will come in and take over from the smaller ones. So that's how that's happening. But in, in terms of the economics, even though the initial price tag is horrifically high, like $1 million, you have to factor in which treatments the gene therapy is replacing. For example, to get clotting factor for somebody with hemophilia for a decade would cost $5 million. So let's say you had a 32-year-old with hemophilia that you could treat and stop the disease. Even if that treatment cost $1 million, the clotting factor would cost much more than that. So I don't know who in the pipeline does the medical economics, but you have to think about the gene therapy cost versus what would it cost otherwise. Mm. Uh, when we think about gene therapy, it might be easy to fall into this idea, well, it sounds like a cure for these types of diseases, but that's the wrong way to think about this, Ricky? I actually never use the word cure. I always use the word treatment. I think that sort of comes from having breast cancer. You just never know what's going to happen. So I think a one-time treatment that gets rid of symptoms is as close to a cure as you can get, but you can never predict the future with any medical treatment. So 
I just don't use that word. Mm-hmm. And Lori, uh, the injection happened in, in, um, in 2016 for Hannah. So will she receive another one or is this, is this it? Um, you know, we would like Hannah to get a higher dose. So we're working, um, you know, trying to keep our finger on the pulse of the next generation central nervous system gene therapy vectors. Um, we know that we can't go back in with the same virus because the body already knows it. So we don't want those antibodies to just render it useless. We want um, a, a new virus that the body doesn't know about that will go infect more nerve cells with a healthy copy of, of the gyanoxonal neuropathy gene. So that's really the next step for our disease as well. GAN, as I mentioned, is a disease of every nerve cell in the body. So right now we have an effort underway at UT Southwestern in Dallas to target the autonomic nervous system. And so far in our, our GAN rat model, it really looks like precision medicine. It is going everywhere we see autonomic nerve pathology in, in our rodent model. So we're really eager to push uh, forward quickly with, with that, new, um, that new treatment. Mm. Well, uh, again, Lori, it's great to hear that Hannah is doing well. I mean, what uh, words of advice do you have for families who might be listening who may not have uh, the time or don't know how to advocate for their child, especially when they're getting a a diagnosis that they know nothing about? Yeah. You know, power in numbers. Find more patients. Rally each patient's community to raise some money to start funding um, you know, research on your specific gene, um, you know, these ultra-rare indications, they're not going to get the attention unless it comes grassroots, sadly. And then once more is learned about the disease, it can then gain traction. Then they'll have enough data, hopefully, to obtain a National Institutes of Health grant. Um, or perhaps, you know, if there's a if what you're doing could apply to a more prevalent indication, you may be able to pique the interest of a pharmaceutical company to get involved. But sadly, it's a grassroots initiative to really start getting attention to your disease. Well, Lori Sames, again, uh, her mother of Hannah Sames and co-founder of Hannah's Hope Fund for Giant Exonal Neuropathy. We'll have more information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Lori, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're learning more about gene therapy. It's a technique that modifies a person's genes to treat or cure a disease. And we wanted to know more about how these therapies are developed for certain types of diseases, especially those that are more rare. So joining our conversation now is Dr. Robert Burgess, who's professor and director of the Center for Precision Genetics at the Jackson Laboratory. That's a nonprofit biomedical research institution with several campuses, including in Bar Harbor, Maine and here in Farmington, Connecticut. Uh, uh, Robert, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. So tell us about the work that you do in your lab. Um, so uh, my work is, is more a little more basic research. We're trying to identify some of the genes that underlie these diseases. Uh, we develop animal models for the diseases. And then working with people like Stephen Gray that, that Laurie Soames mentioned, uh, we actually then use those animal models to, to test therapies, including gene therapies. So, I mean, how is it decided, uh, you know, which diseases to focus on and then to uh, move on to the clinical trial phase, Robert? Uh, 
some of it is opportunistic. Uh, if there is a good amount of background information, if there's an animal model already available, if we already know a fair amount about the genetics of the disease, do we need to turn the gene on? Do we need to turn the gene off? What organs do we need to target? Do we need to target the nervous system or the muscle or the liver or all of the above? Uh, so that can help us if, if there's a lot of um, prior information like that. Um, sometimes we can move into a, a preclinical trial testing a therapy maybe in, in just a year or two. Uh, if, if we need to do all that background research, it, it might take much longer, maybe five years or 10 years. Mm. Uh, we've heard about uh, several different types of genetic diseases already uh, that are hard to pronounce. But when we think about um, how uh, researchers, uh, even pharmaceutical companies, move forward on clinical trials, is it, uh, is it easier to do that for uh, more common diseases versus, versus the ones that we've heard about that uh, affect very small populations? Um, yeah, you know, there's there's some interesting economics that's kind of been been mentioned here. Uh, so advantages of of the rare diseases are the the trials are actually in some ways easier because there are, there are just fewer patients. Um, if you're going to try to treat a very common disease like diabetes, uh, you're going to need a very large clinical trial to show that it's safe and effective. Um, if you're treating these very rare diseases, there's the advantage that there there probably aren't very many patients. So you might uh, you know, a, a few drugs for things like spinal muscular atrophy have been approved recently on, on very limited uh, uh, trials, just a, a few dozen patients. So in that regard, the trials are easier. The challenge is actually finding those patients and, and also getting, uh, getting the, the, the pharmaceutical and biotech industry interested in the rare diseases. Now, when you're in your lab and you're doing research on mice, I mean, is it, can you describe a little more about um, how you make the decision to go from the animal to uh, the, the, the human in this clinical trial? Uh, a, a lot of it is um, the availability of partners. You know, no, it, this is very difficult to do through one lab and just, just one institution and, and uh, one investigator. So uh, we often will develop the animal model, and if it looks like a, a very good animal model, you know, the genetics are very similar to the human genetics, and the, the disease that the mice develop is very similar to the, the disease that the, the people develop, um, that, that makes it a more attractive target. Uh, and then we start partnering with uh, other investigators like Stephen Gray at UT Southwestern, who we've worked with. Uh, we have collaborations with people at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, in their gene therapy center. Uh, so th they then are the ones who are often developing the actual gene therapy vectors, these AAV vectors that we've, we've talked about earlier in the show. Uh, and, and then, uh, so they often actually produce the, the gene therapy vector itself and send it to us for the, for the trials in the animals. So it, it kind of comes down to a, a synergy of, of, you know, needing to find clinicians who have patients and researchers like myself who, who have the, the laboratory capacity in the animal models and um, people like Steve Gray or people at Nationwide Children's Hospital who are uh, then actually, you know, developing the gene therapy vectors that we can test. Hmm. Uh, with us from a studio at WAMC in Albany is Ricky Lewis, uh, who's a science writer and geneticist and also author of the book, The Forever Fix, Gene Therapy and the Boy Who Saved It. Uh, Ricky, uh, when uh, parents, again, are hearing about these uh, clinical trials, you know, what do they have to weigh before, again, enrolling their child? And, and some of the questions that um, you've heard from parents uh, in your research. Well, it depends. It varies by disease and what, what the alternative would be to being in the clinical trial. And as everyone has, has said, when these diseases are so rare, 
there aren't really any alternatives. And to get things rolling, I mean, we're kind of lucky to be in the age of social media. Places like Facebook make it so much easier to connect with other families. And as Lori said, there's definitely strength in the numbers. I guess the flip side is uh, with the Internet, uh, sometimes the information you find uh, may not be helpful uh, for you to make the right decision. Well, then you could you learn your way around what's out there rather than reading media that's written for the general population. I don't mean to sound like a snob here, but going to, to Google Scholar and finding the actual papers in the medical literature is the way to go in, in finding information. And just cold emailing researchers, you'd be surprised. They do answer. And, and that's the way to get to a trial. I, I was contacted through Facebook about three weeks ago from um, a mother who has a toddler who has not only a very rare disease, but a, an incredibly rare type of mutation, which is very similar to Hannah Sames's situation. And I've been working with her to try to find a therapy, a type of therapy that we think will work. And she actually had a neurologist tell her to go home and enjoy her son while she can. And like Lori Sames, who I thought of immediately, she will not take no for an answer. So there are answers. There's always an answer of something that can be tried. When we look back at that Jesse Gelsinger case back in 1999, again, he uh, had a genetic disease of the liver, um, and he passed away after receiving gene therapy. Uh, did his family have all the information they needed at that point to make uh, the right decision, or from Jesse himself? Um, at the time, I you know, it's been several years since I wrote the book, so I don't remember all the details, but the, his father... Um, wrote a long, detailed paper. You can just Google Jesse Gelsinger's father and you'll find it. And he felt that they were not adequately prepared for what could happen. Uh, with us again um, by phone is uh, Dr. Robert Burgess, the professor and director of the Center for Precision Genetics at the Jackson Laboratory. This is a nonprofit a research institution uh, that has locations in Maine and also here in Connecticut. Uh, with the work that you're doing, Rob, uh, what's your relationship with families who are looking for some t- type of treatment uh, to help other loved ones? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm contacted uh, n- not certainly on a daily basis, but, but a few times a year by, by patients uh, who are, you know, interested in what we're doing or they've, they've heard about uh, some of our, our work in, in these preclinical gene therapy studies and, and a few that are, are getting a little closer to actually going to clinical trials. Uh, and, you, you know, there's, there's a awkward, um, you know, first of all, I'm not a clinician, so I can't offer them any medical advice. I can tell them sort of what the status of the research field is now. Um, I'm often not the best person, you know, I, I have my areas of expertise, but I'm not necessarily the best person in the world to work on this. I, I try to refer them to, to those people if I know them. Um, and then there's also just the question of capacity. I, I, can, I can take on a few of these diseases and a few of these cases and, and preclinical studies, um, but there are 7,000 rare diseases out there, and I, I have about a half dozen people in my lab. So, um, you know, there, there's, there's a limited capacity there. So mostly what I try to do is provide them as much information information as I can. I try to refer them to, you know, the people who are working on this. Um, and then in a, in a few cases, um, we, we actually decide to try to take it on. Um, maybe we already have a mouse model or we've developed a mouse model and it fits nicely into our area of expertise. So, um, so then we'll, we'll take on a few of these where I feel like we can actually really make an impact with, with our research program. Mm-hmm. 
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, today we're learning more about gene therapy. Right after the break, we want to learn more about uh, where gene therapy is going. And we want to hear from you. Do you or a loved one have a genetic disease? What questions do you have about gene therapy and its ongoing advancements? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, we're going to learn more about efforts underway both locally and nationally to help people find housing. On the next Where We Live, we're going to listen back to a panel I moderated for the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. And we're also going to learn about a net zero affordable housing proposal in Norfolk, Connecticut. That's on Monday. Now, today we've been learning about gene therapy. My guests are Dr. Ricky Lewis, a science writer and geneticist, author of several books, including the one we're talking about today, The Forever fix, Gene Therapy and the Boy Who Saved It. She's joining us from a studio at WAMC in Albany, New York. And on the phone, Dr. Robert Burgess, a professor and director of the Center for Precision Genetics at the Jackson Laboratory. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, earlier, Ricky, uh, you had mentioned uh, a story uh, that uh, someone told you about when she was reaching out uh, to a doctor about some uh, treatments. Uh, they were told, uh, you know, they didn't know much about gene therapy. And I'm wondering if, if that is changing today uh, in the medical community. Oh, I think it's going to be changing quite a bit. Right now in many medical s- schools, the students actually get their own genome sequenced and have to analyze their own data. So they will be coming into their practices having a pretty good knowledge of what genetics and genomics are, whereas perhaps physicians who didn't have that sort of training wouldn't know. And I ran into that as I mentioned, the breast cancer, when I consulted the physicians for that, none of them knew that there were genes beyond BRCA1 and 2 that could predispose to cancer. And I became very frustrated in finding physicians who had no idea what I was talking about. That's been going on for years. But things are changing quite a bit. Mm. Uh, Earlier, we touched on the cost of gene therapy. Uh, Recently, attention on what's being called the world's most expensive therapy, uh, Zolgensma, if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, costing $2 million, the FDA approving it in May. And this is a gene therapy for a rare childhood disorder, uh, uh, SMA. Uh, Again, why is gene therapy so expensive? When someone sees that headline that this is going to cost $2 million, what's behind that, that hefty price tag? Well, the development, you have to go through the, the animal model, which is usually a mouse, but but can be something else. And just you have to do something called a natural history study where you know every single nuance of the disease. So you have something compare, to compare it to. The clinical trials are enormously expensive. So the expenses are there. The headlines are a little disingenuous because the companies do have programs to help the, the families pay some part of that bill. So, you know, it's kind of an evolving situation, but a spinal muscular atrophy is not actually that rare. It's not like, like GAN. Um, it's almost as common as cystic fibrosis, and it's an absolutely horrific disease. And it kind of, um, the genetics is very, very well studied. So it seems to me, <clears throat> my cold is showing, <laughs> it um, seems to me that it was a very obvious candidate for gene therapy. So much is known about the gene that's responsible. And, and it, it is a very awful disease that most children don't live beyond two years of age. And 
the results have been astonishing so far. Uh, when we talk about the cost, if a family has insurance, is this something an insurer will take on? I can't answer that. I don't know anything about health insurance. Yeah, um, Rob, when you're doing, uh, again, uh, your uh, research, uh, you're again seeing uh, these high costs firsthand. Uh, yeah, most of my research is, is funded by the National Institutes of Health. We, we've also been funded by organizations like the Muscular Dystrophy Association. Uh, and, um, yeah, even producing these vectors, as, as Ricky mentioned, producing these vectors is extremely expensive. Um, and, you know, my laboratory is just using what we would call a research-grade vector. Um, you, you know, this is not something that you'd, you'd actually – it hasn't gone through enough quality control to be used in a human. Um, and even just producing those vectors is really quite expensive. So, uh, you know, there, there's surely a markup on this $2 million price tag, but um, – but it's not a giant markup. It's not a factor of 10 markup, for example. The, producing the vectors uh, is, is actually a very expensive process. Mm. Uh, Ricky, in your book, The Forever Fix, you talk about uh, while the, the cost is high today, um, the chances of this therapy uh, costing less in the future? Oh, again, I'm not, I'm not an economist, so I'm not really sure how that will go. But I can look ahead about 10 years and I think that what is going to happen <clears throat> is that um, genome sequencing is going to be done on newborns. It's already been done in pilot studies on thousands of newborns so that the multi-year diagnostic odyssey will shift down to a couple of days and diagnoses will come quicker and treatments will be there. I know it sounds kind of rose-colored glasses, but I really see that happening, knowing the diagnoses earlier and finding all these precision techniques, I think a lot of diseases are going to be treatable. And it's not just gene therapy. There are some other treatments as well. Mm. Uh, something I wanted to ask you, Ricky, uh, when an individual undergoes a gene therapy later on uh, in life when they may decide to have children, uh, you know, are there risks for that child inheriting that same disease? Well, the, the gene hasn't been altered, but most of the diseases that are treated are recessive, so the partner would have to also be a carrier to have the child face the risk. But mentioning going into the future is interesting because a problem that's emerging, challenge really, is that when diseases such as SMA, that's a good example, become treatable when they weren't before, when they were lethal before age two, the kids who can live longer than they naturally would have are developing new symptoms that doctors weren't aware of. And this has happened with a disease called Pompeii disease, where the kids who've survived have developed breathing difficulties that were never there before the gene therapy, just because they live longer. But now that told the researchers to go back, redesign the vectors, and now they're given the injections in the diaphragm muscle as well as wherever else they're given it so that they can overcome that treatment. So it will be interesting to see what happens to Hannah as the years go on. We'll learn from this one family, we're going to learn so much, and it may, you know, spill over to other neurological diseases as well. Mm. Uh, Robert, we were talking about uh, advances in gene therapy. Uh, what do you see the future holding? Um, I think, uh, you know, the, the diseases that are most tractable right now, uh, the, the ones we've talked about, like giant axonal neuropathy or spinal muscular atrophy, uh, are, are largely recessive diseases. You inherit two bad copies of the gene, one from, from each parent. Um, so the strategy, is, as, as Ricky mentioned earlier, is basically just to, to 
restore a functional copy of that gene with the gene therapy vector. Uh, I think as our sophistication, both in understanding the genetics of, of other diseases, uh, things like Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease, or I'm, I'm, I'm a neuroscientist, so you can see my bias, but, but even, you know, metabolic disorders, uh, as our understanding of the genetics becomes better there in, in these, these more complicated diseases in people, um, and as our sophistication in delivering genes becomes um, better with better vectors and just better ways to do that, uh, I, I think it'll be exciting to see how the, the scope of diseases that we can hope to treat might improve. Um, I think it's incredibly important to address these ultra-rare diseases. Um, you know, there really aren't any alternative strategies for this. I think gene therapy is an excellent application for this that all of a sudden has made these ultra-rare diseases tractable. But I think it's interesting to think about how gene therapy could actually start to be you know, applied more broadly to, to other more common diseases that we don't necessarily think of as, as purely genetic right now. And uh, when that happens, uh, then the cost may go down with more people um, that are more applicable uh, to these gene therapies? Um, yeah, right now, um, the, the cost and, and maybe just more practically, well, cost is very practical, but um, Practically speaking, also the, the manufacturing capacity for these AAV vectors is, is still limiting. Uh, so, you know, while it would be wonderful to be able to, you know, treat everyone that had hypertension with, with, uh, with an AAV vector, for example, if we knew how to do that, uh, we don't actually have the manufacturing capacity right now to, to meet that demand. So, you know, hopefully this will be economics, right? And all of these things, as demand goes up, the, the technology will get better, the manufacturing will get better, the costs will come down. Um, but but it's, it, it, as Ricky mentioned, it's a little hard to foresee, you know, ex exactly what that, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure this will be like computer chips where we can have a graph that has, you know, largely held true for the last 50 years in terms of, of, of cost and, and technology. Um, hopefully, uh, something like that will, will be true. And, and obviously, the more um, attention and the more market there is for these things, the, the, the more research and the more development will be, will be done towards um, both the, the manufacturing capacity and the cost. But um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure it will happen, but I'm not sure if we can promise exactly the, the, you know, the same curve that we've seen on things like computer memory, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rob, in your work, again, uh, when we think about rare diseases, this is something that, um, that's supported greatly by the National Institutes for Health? Uh, yes, most, most of my work is, is supported by National Institutes of Health. Um, and again, in, in some cases, since we, my lab is focused mostly on neuromuscular diseases, we, we have been focused, uh, supported by, by the Muscular Dystrophy Association also in the past. Um, but, uh, you know, NIH, actually, National Institutes of Health, uh, has a, a, an active program looking at these rare diseases. Uh, they are not... Pharmaceutical companies, understandably, are, are focused on a return on their investment, um, and the more patients you have the potential to treat, the, the greater your potential return on that investment. Uh, National Institutes of Health actually is very supportive of, of this rare disease research. Uh, Ricky Lewis, again, you've been in touch with many uh, patients and families. Uh, when they see the advancements in gene therapies, are they excited about the future? They are, and as as time, I've been, I've been thinking about gene therapy on for decades, and there's just a more positive environment now than than I've ever seen before. Probably because of a couple of the setbacks, but yeah, it's a promising future. People aren't afraid of genes anymore, especially this is a whole different topic. But but with the consumer genetic testing 
availability. People just are better educated. They understand what genes are. They know what what the enemy is in, in terms of the diseases. So, yeah, things are looking up. There are several different ways to attack genetic disease now, and we're seeing the first FDA approvals, and that's just terrific. Uh, more awareness in the broader public, as you mentioned. Uh, do they see gene therapy as a revolution of sorts? Is that that's what, what some headlines claim? Um, I don't know. I, To be perfectly honest, there wasn't like a big response to my book when it was published. And it seems just to me that people may not know what gene therapy is, but they're super excited about gene editing. So I don't know, maybe it has a better story. But the two are kind of bleeding together in people's consciousness. But it's great. We'll have both. It'll be terrific. We'll be able to treat more diseases if we can add genes as well as replace them. You mentioned gene editing. Uh, People are excited. But also, is it alarming uh, to hear stories like in China with these uh, twin babies? Oh, the twin babies is alarming because he inserted the... um, he inserted the genes as the fertilized egg was forming, and that creates an individual with the change in every cell. That's very, very different from the therapeutic gene things we've been talking about here. And rather than looking him up on Google Scholar, you have to go to YouTube to find his work. So that in itself made me not take it all that seriously. If, if doctor, he did do what he claimed to do, it's a very intriguing and interesting experiment, but I don't think it should have been done on humans yet, if ever. Well, we found your book very fascinating. Dr. Ricky Lewis, a science writer and geneticist. The book, The Forever Fix, Gene Therapy and the Boy Who Saved It, joining us today from a studio at WAMC in Albany, New York. Uh, Ricky, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for your interest. Also with us, Dr. Robert Burgess, professor and director of the Center for Precision Genetics at the Jackson Laboratory. It's a nonprofit biomedical research institution with several locations in Maine and here in Farmington, Connecticut. Rob, thank you. Uh, Thank you. It was my pleasure. Uh, Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Thanks to Carmen Baskoff and our technical producer, Kion Wolf. You can learn more about the show at wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.